Welcome once again to the Bible Idiots Podcast with Chris and Emily Danielson. And today is Wednesday. That means we're going to be bringing you our long-form teaching. And today, Pastor Chris is going to be going into Ephesians chapter 6 and talking about the full armor of God. Now, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, we love to be with you on your way to work or whatever your commute is, whether it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But Wednesday is a special day each and every week because we bring you a full teaching and we really hope that it will help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Ephesians chapter 6, the full armor of God. Here is Pastor Chris Danielson. kept thinking about this message over and over throughout the week. And I thought, you know, we've got a lot of ground to cover leading up to Easter. Let's try to put it all into one message. So we're going to hit this all today. Yay. It's about the armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And I thank Larissa for reading that for us today because we're going to cover it on the fly this morning. And we're going to get into it in a, in a deeper way. You've got your sermon notes there. But when you start looking at like storytelling, and you hear these great war stories. It's always about how, you know, the ill-equipped guy who's lost his, his gun and he doesn't have his, his armor anymore, and he jumps in the fray, and he cleans house of like eight enemies with, you know, a, a stick, a butter knife, and two rocks. Or how about this? You do realize that to actually shoot a handgun you want to have as much stability as you can. You stable your feet, you stable your arm, you usually support it with the other hand, and you have a chance at accuracy. But Hollywood, no, we'll be diving with guns crossed, ugh, shooting four or five guys at a time. It doesn't work that way in real life. They're great stories, but actually those who are ill-prepared are usually the stories of tragedy. They're the stories of getting gunned down, of the ones who are losing the battles. It's not heroism, it's defeat. The truth of the modern church is that many want to follow the Lord like that. You know, when it gets real, they lie to themselves, then I'll find a way. I remember we had this youth group one time and there was this kid named uh, Nick, I can't remember his last name, ninth grader. You know ninth grade boys, right? And I don't know how we got on the conversation, but he told the whole group that if anybody ever put a gun at my head, I would just kick it out of their hands. And he was serious. I'm like, no, Nick, you don't kick it out of their hands. That's not how it works. But most Christians have forgotten that in the middle of the joy, the, just the incredibleness of salvation, the peace of Christ, the contentment with godliness that's great gain, the Christian life is still not a playground, but a battlefield. And right in the middle of it all, Right in the middle of all that good stuff that's going on, there's a major battle going on, and it's happening. And if you're sensitive to it, you see it, and you see it starts with you, and it starts in the household of faith. That's where the battle is really happening. And so as a result, the Lord's people need to be equipped, they need to be armed, and they need to be ready to wage appropriate spiritual battle. Now, whether we're, you know, whether we believe it or not, I'm just telling you, you're in a spiritual warfare, and you won't always win the day. Which is why when you do lose the day, you repent. And why when someone repents, you forgive them and restore them, especially in a fellowship. And if there can't be repentance, and there can't be res restoration, then do you really want that person fighting on your team? Got to be honest. 
That's what the covenant partnerships have been about. That's what the Clean Slate Sunday has been about. That's what Relaunch Sunday has been about. It's always been leading up to this. Putting on the full armor of God and standing together in the days in which we live. First for ourselves, then for our close inner family, which includes the church. So in this passage, we're given insight into the battle. We're engaged in and the weapons in which we fight the battle. Folks, look around. We're in the battle of our lives. We're in a battle that I don't know if the world has ever even seen before. Where we have people seriously looking into a camera and saying, we believe in the science, except for biology when it doesn't fit our purpose. And everybody's got to play make-believe with us. It's the only way for you not to be a racist. The scriptures say to stand. It says in verse 11, 13, and 14 of our text, how do we do that? How do we prepare for that battle? Paul reveals that in our fight of our life, we must prepare ourselves to be effective. That's what this is about today. We're going to worship God by getting ourselves prepared to be effective. So let's look at verses 10 through 12. In 10 through 12 of point number one, our enemy in this fight... Point number one is our enemy in this fight. Let's identify the enemy. Verses 10 through 12 do that. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. So what do we learn from those three things? One, our enemy has a name, and our enemy has a nature. The name is the devil, the accuser, the slanderer. The word in English, diabolical, comes from this. It's his character. He made his first appearance upon the pages of the Bible in Genesis and in Job, and he's been in the business of lying, slandering, and accusing the people of God ever since. And our enemy's nature... These verses tell us two things. He is a shrewd enemy, and he is a spiritual enemy. We got to look at that. We got to be straight up about it. The shrewd enemy, the word wiles in verse 11 is the same word we get our word method. It refers to craftiness and trickery. Let's look at Ephesians 4.14. And in this, I want you to see something. I want you to see at the end of the verse, and I'll read it in just a sec. It says, where he lies in wait to deceive. Think of a hunter disguising himself in order to capture his prey. This is a perfect picture of the devil. Verse 14 of Ephesians 4. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lay in wait to deceive. Everyone can be deceived. And you know when you realize you're not deceived? When you're not deceived anymore. Which is why when you're deceiving yourself on your journey, daily in keeping with repentance, we serve the Lord. He constantly gives us what? Jesus says it a dozen times in the New Testament, in red letters. He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. Why? So we can see who's lying in wait for us. Remember what the Bible tells us about Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. This is just something you need to keep in the forefront of your mind. Let's look at it. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. 
Verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When you have some rat poison, what is 98% of the, of the rat poison? Pretty tasty rat food. What's 2%? Poison that kills the rat. Satan masks himself as an angel of light in our, in our world because he's going to pull out all the stops to try to trip you up, especially when you start to groove with the Lord. That's when you got to be on guard for the enemy. When you're grooving with the Lord and you, you have all of this peace, this joy of salvation, you see God's working in your midst, you see people are coming together, you see revival's about to happen, you put on the full armor of God because he's coming for you. He's coming out of the bushes and he's going to try to gun you down. And you got to be ready to stop him. In your own strength, ain't going to happen. In God's strength, happens every time when you put on the full armor of God. Because this is a spiritual enemy. Too often we're guilty of fighting the wrong foe. We'll get at odds with fellow believers when the real enemy is the devil. He's a master of sowing discord among the brethren. And when you see it, it has to be confronted and it has to be put down. Straight up. We cannot allow discord among the brethren at a time of this nature especially in this country and in this church. For where this country's been and where it's going and where this church has been and where it's going. See, the enemy's a spiritual enemy, but how do we go about knowing how to fight him? You know, there's so many different ways we can interpret different scriptures. And we just learned that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So how do we deal with him? Anybody here like George Patton? I love George Patton. If you're going to learn how to fight a war, Patton's your guy. And I can't think of George Patton and not think of George C. Scott. That's just me. Anybody over 40 is like, I think I get that. <laughs> well, Patton, it's, it's widely reported when he was fighting uh, General Erwin Rommel, the, the, the German dude, he's reported to have shouted in the thick of battle as they're going back and forth. And Patton is just counterattacking everything that, that Rommel's trying to do. And he's crushing him. And in the middle of the battle, the soldiers reported that Patton's yelling. He's letting, I read your book, Rommel. I read your book. And he did. Rommel's book of infantry attacks, Patton had read it. He carefully studied the detailed strategy of Rommel. He knew what the guy was going to try to do, and he blocked him at every path. Now, God has fully exposed our enemy. Defeating the devil and the keys to understanding how he works. You ready? The secret is reading about him in the word of God. It says so in 2 Timothy 2.15. You can look that up later. So point two today is our energy in this fight. Where do we get the energy for this fight? Well, let's look at verse 10 again. Verse 10 says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's three things that, that pop out as a matter of spiritual energy. The source of our, of, of our energy, the scope of our energy, and the strength of our energy. Let's start with source. We're told that the source of, of energy is not from ourselves. It doesn't come from within. It's good to know because my energy runs quite low, quite often. We're told, however, that what, what are we supposed to do? Be strong in the Lord and in his might. 
this means that we draw our strength from the power of his might. Sounds redundant on the surface, but when you understand the word might, force, strength, ability, power, refers to God's dominion and sovereign ability to exercise his power, then it is easy to see how the Lord can strengthen and energize those who place their trust in him. You can get a lot of energy from just the source of the Lord. Then there's the scope of our energy. Look, there's a reason the military doesn't let us in after like 32 or 33 or whatever the age is now. Because we think, those of us in our 50s, like me, you think you can still run and catch the touchdown, but you can't. That's why you watch the younger guys do it. And then when they're done catching the touchdowns, you tell them how you used to do it when you were their age. Because you still want to feel part of the game. See, the church, if we could ever grasp the truth that we are as strong as in which we trust, it would revolutionize the country. Revival is going to come from the strength of the Lord and those who are surrendered and drawing from that strength. That's what's going to happen. Let me give you an illustration. These are two lame illustrations, but just get your mind around it. I can't fly, but if I put myself in an airplane and yield to its power, I can soar through the air. You know, you hear the old comedian talking about how when Wi-Fi first came on, the stewardess comes on and says, you know, uh, uh, sorry, uh, folks, but the uh, Internet is down, and, you know, we're not going to be able to have any Wi-Fi on this aircraft. And the guy sitting next to him says, oh, you know, like, this is just unacceptable. And the comedian turns to him and says, you realize you're sitting in a chair in the sky. You yield to the power of the airplane, you go 500 miles an hour through the air at 30,000 feet. Pretty, pretty cool for folks who can't fly. Or we get into a vehicle, we can go 75 miles an hour down, down the interstate, yielding to the power of the car. I can't run 75 miles an hour. You get what I'm saying? Even though those are poor illustrations, our faith in God and his power and his strength then becomes our strength, and we do things that's way beyond our abilities. When you look at the first and second great awakenings, those things were happening in spite of the weaknesses of the preachers that were preaching. When you are baptized, when you take communion, it has nothing to do with the worthiness of the person doing the dunking or the worthiness of the person pouring the grape juice. Do you follow? It's God that has himself for you, and his strength will carry you in areas you can't go. And what's the number one thing we want God to carry us to? into the presence of God where he will look at us as if we've never sinned because of the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. And when you have that strength in your face every day, you're flying. You're, you're cruising. That's why the Bible says it's so important for those who live by faith. Let's look at four scriptures. Ephesians 3.20, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. It's not our power. He's doing stuff way beyond our skill set. Mark 11.22 and 23, and Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he has said will come to pass, he shall have whatsoever was said. Do you get that? That's amazing. And that's true. And he's talking about spiritual mountains. He's talking about 
He's talking about things that we can't move ourselves. Mark 9, 23, Jesus said unto them, if, if you can believe, if you can, kind of like, what do you mean if I can? All things are possible for one who believes. And then John 14, 12, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I shall do, he shall do. And greater works than these he shall do because I go unto my father. Now, I've taught this already, but I'm going to remind you. When he says greater works, he is not talking about he raised Lazarus from the dead, so we're going to raise five people from the dead. That's not what he's talking about. The word greater here means you're going to do it more times. You're going to go to more lands. I'm here for 33 years. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to give my life up for your sins, and I'm going to raise from the dead. And then you are going to stay here, and you're going to go all over and do much more greater in number things than what I've done. And we've watched that come to pass. And then what about the strength of our enemy? It enables us to stand. So when the battles are over and we go home to be with the Lord in his heaven, we can, be, we can say like what Paul did, I finished the fight, I finished well. God's power will be our power, and we will be able to stand then in the day of battle. Do you see the day of battle is upon us? The day of battle is upon every Christian every day. Because Satan wants to take you out of the game. The story goes through the Civil War uh, about a Union soldier in Ohio. He was shot in the arm during the Battle of Shiloh. And his captain saw he was wounded and gave the order, give me your gun, private, and get to the rear guard. So the private handed over his rifle, and he ran to the north, and he saw a skirmish, and then he ran to the east, and he saw another skirmish, and he ran to the west, he saw another skirmish. He ran back to the captain, and he said, uh, give me back my gun, Captain. There ain't no rear guard to this battle. When it comes to spiritual warfare, there ain't no rear guard. And for you grammar Nazis, there surely is not any rear guard. <laughs> I don't want to fall. I want to stand. Friends, there's nowhere to run. The battle rages all around us. The only thing you can do is run away from the Lord, which many do. That's called falling. But if we want to stand, we have to place all of ourselves, our very best, in faith, in the awesome power of God to stand. Final point today. Our equipment in this fight. Our equipment in this fight. We're going to do a grocery list here. We're going to do it in two ways. We're going to do the equipment that is designed to defend and the equipment that is designed to defeat. Let's start with defend. It has been said that a soldier is no better than his equipment. Paul has told us about our enemy, and we've talked about our energy. Now let's talk about our equipment. The equipment that is designed to defend is given in imagery here to the Ephesian church. Now I want you to be clear on one thing as we get into this. This is not the armor of any super soldier. This is the common, run-of-the-mill, everyday soldier in Rome. You follow? Okay? If you were in the military in Rome, this is your standard issue. And that's key to keep in mind. Because we tend to look at this and, well, maybe, maybe it's just me, but maybe a lot of you are like me. When you first look at this, you think, oh, that's the super Christian who puts on the full armor of God. No, no, no. This is just average run-of-the-mill folk. 
need this. Let's start with the girdle of truth or the belt of truth. When we say belt, sometimes we think of just a little thing that holds our pants up. This is not. It's bigger. When I played football back in the day, we had football pants. We had girdles that had the inner pads that covered, you know, a lot more. And in the 70s, when you grow up and you hear the word girdle, you think that's for old ladies. And so it's girdle. That's always a funny word, girdle. Look at Chris. He's wearing his girdle. But it's the belt of truth. It's the girdle of truth. It encircles the waist. It stabilizes the whole body. It protects the midsection. Now, for the believer, this is in reference to the truth of the Bible. Jesus promises us that the truth had the power to make us free in John 8, 32. Knowing the truth will stabilize us, protect us, and prevent us from being tripped up in the battles of life. And it reminds us that we need to walk in truth. And then next, we have the breastplate of righteousness found in verse 14. This refers to the leather body armor that is worn to protect the vital tender areas of the Bible. For the believer, this refers to righteousness of life. We are declared righteous when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we're commanded to practice righteousness as a habit of life. When we live holy, consecrated lives before the Lord, we are less prone to attacks from the devil. Our hearts are guarded and protected from the slings and arrows, and it reminds us that we are to live in righteousness. Number three, verse 15, the shoes of the gospel. Roman soldiers wore sandals that had nails driven into the bottom. They were like, you know, first century cleats. And they gave them sure footing during the battlefield. They were well-grounded. For the believer, this reminds us that we are to be well-grounded in the things of God. We are to be sure, listen to me now, this is key. We are to be sure of our own conversion and of the fundamentals of faith. We must be sure of our own salvation and of the fundamentals of faith. This is why... We don't stay in the fundamentals. We come to worship. We have to have times where we review the fundamentals, but then we have to grow in our faith. We have to be standing firm in our faith. We need to know what we believe and why so, so that when the foundation is there, we're sure-footed when the battle comes. Make sense? It'll give us peace in the battle of life when we're sure-footed. When we're laced up in preparation for service as a child of God, we also need to be ready then to march forward with what his commands are. If his command is to go do something that you're a little uncomfortable in doing, we talk about it. We have fellowship together. We work it out. Next, you have the shield of faith. This is not some little round shield. It refers to a large rectangular shield behind which the shoulder, a soldier could have safety from the fiery darts of the enemy. Now, often, Roman soldiers would soak their leather shields in water before battle. Why? This enabled the shields to be more effective because they used to shoot flaming arrows. The believer, for us, the believer is reminded that when we go into battle, we possess this shield. And our shield is not leather, but our shield is faith. And the shield, I think, out of all of these, is number one. And I say that because the fiery darts come from all over the place. They can, they can come from your spouse. You can be the one firing a dart today. But when they come from the world, we stand together as a church. When they come from inside, that shield is faith, and that faith quenches the fiery darts. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing 
and hearing from the word of God. It is a shield that will never expose the carrier. Why? Because faith allows us to stand in the battle and we receive the victory, regardless of the odds we face. Hear me now. When we have the shield of faith, we stand and we receive victory regardless of the odds we face. I don't say so. The Bible says so. Hebrews chapter 11, the whole chapter, read it sometime. It's important. We are told that we are to have this article above all. God says, without faith, you can't please me. You can't be with God without faith. It is all or nothing with God. Either you have faith in him or you don't. We accept Jesus Christ as our Savior by faith. Even when some of the other articles of our armor might be missing or damaged, let us have that faith always in hand. That shield is of the utmost importance. Lastly, in this section, the helmet of salvation. The helmet was given to the Roman soldier to protect his brain. Regardless of how well the rest of our bodies, you take a, you take a headshot, you're incapacitated, right? We're able to be effective for the battle and the glory of God. We must first be saved. Salvation then, what? Provides that helmet that's necessary to protect our minds from the attack of the enemy. When we are saved, we are transformed. And when we are transformed, the first thing we have is that shield of faith that we just got done talking about, right? But as we fight battles, we must never forget that the Lord did save us by his grace. And in Romans 12, 2, the transformation of your mind in that helmet is like protecting your head from the devil and what he wants to do for you. So now, let's move to the, to the final. Equipment that is designed to defeat. Equipment that is designed to defeat. Now, all, not all the armor is designed to protect the soldier. Sometimes, we have to go into battle, right? Therefore, the soldier possesses two offensive weapons in this scenario laid out by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. It allows him to strike back when attacked. Number one, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Now, y'all know, well, maybe y'all don't know, but many of you know, that I have a High King Peter sword from Narnia. Big, long sword, and, or the Princess Bride. I am Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Long swords, and they're out there just king, king, king. I'm God. That's not this. This sword that Paul is talking about was an uh, issue to every soldier. It was a short sword, great in hand-to-hand -hand combat. They needed it for survival. They used it for a lot of things. So when you hear the sword of the Spirit, I want you to think of something that's very useful. And that for us as believers, that sword is the Word of God. The Bible is what we are to attack the enemy with and watch him fall. It's the word of God that enables us to conquer everything that we face. And it's essential that we're protected by this weapon and that we use it appropriately. By study, by hard work, putting it to use. And dare I say, understanding how to use it where you don't... Let's just say you're in Roman times and there's a tent that's, st that's stuck. There's some glue on the tent. You want to open the flap. You take the, the sword that you've gotten, a sword, that's the sword, not, not sword, sword, and you go and you, you, you gently open that flap of the tent instead of taking that knife and just hacking the snot out of that leather and ruining the opening to the tent. 
Does that make sense? We cannot use the Bible as if it's an anvil to just try to crush people with it. But we use it to defend ourselves, and we use it to defeat, to go forward and defeat. See, the Greek word for Scripture is logos. This is referred to the totality of the Word of God. But the word used here when Paul talks about this sword, he uses the word rima. While logo refers to the entire armory of the Bible, rima refers to just the right sword for the right job for that battle. Now, is there an example of Jesus doing this? Yes, there is. In Matthew chapter 4, when he faced the devil on the Mount of Temptation, Jesus strolls into the armory of God. He goes into the weapon room labeled Deuteronomy, and he pulls out three things from that weapon room and totally throttles Satan. So it is with us. Let us become so familiar with the armory that we can precisely select the weapon for each battle we face. And as the word of God is used, the sword of the spirit, we will see the enemy just sliced into shreds in every battle we fight. In fact, in fact, many times, the word of God will do the fighting for you. And you can just do what? Stand firm. Lastly, I call it the briefing room of the spirit. It's another advantage we have that is the ability to always be in uh, communication with our commanding officer at all times. Communication or comms in the military is a big thing. Being able to communicate is critical to the success of any battle that's being waged. And for us in the spiritual realm, it is prayer. Prayer is the answer. The problem has been forever solved with prayer. The greatest offensive weapon we have is the ability to call on the Lord our God when we're in the thick of battle. And he communicates to us his orders. And sometimes we're not obedient soldiers. Sometimes when he communicates to us, it doesn't make sense. And we're like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But his sovereignty in his communication and his sovereignty in the briefing room of the Spirit with you as you have the full armor of God, there's one thing that'll happen. Are you ready? Here it comes. It'll be well with you. It'll be well with you when you're in communion with God. We can never be guilty of neglecting the awesome power of prayer. Prayer brings you into the presence of God and allows the Lord's work through you in a remarkable way. Prayer unleashes the power of God in the life of a believer. It happens. And so many times we get this, well, I'll pray for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm praying for you. I'm going to throw one up to the Lord for you. And yet there's other times where you get down on your knees and you cry out to God for this circumstance, for this person, for this ailment, for this uh, provision. When you are in the briefing room of the Spirit, when you're walking with God in the full armor of God, whether you are on your knees or whether you're driving, tossing up prayers to God, it's just as legitimate. It is. Because it's communication. It's communication. Do you think it's any different if a general stands in the tent and tells his sergeant to go do something? Or if he's on a field radio five miles away? Or if he's on a cell phone? Or if he text messages, which they do now in the field? Do you think it's any different? It still carries the same weight, right? As believers in Christ, we're engaged in a spiritual warfare with unseen wicked forces. To overcome the enemy and the power of the Holy Spirit, we must remain resolute in our confidence in God 
and determined never to accept defeat. And in that constant communication with God, you toss a prayer here, you toss a prayer there, you get down on your knees for two hours until your back hurts. They're all the same in legitimacy. Make sense? It's hard for us to imagine that when we come and pray and kneel at the altar, that that's not any more legitimate than somebody sitting in the chairs. And it's no more legitimate than somebody watching on YouTube. It's all the same. I find it to draw me closer into worship when I kneel at the altar. And that's why some of you have joined me and you feel the same way. And some of you who've never joined us, come on. But it doesn't make it any better. It's not any stronger. We're not any closer to the Lord. You're just as legitimate sitting in your chair talking to God. But we will not accept defeat. We will always be going to our, our, our king, our creator, our counselor. We will always be in communi- communication with faith being what makes him pleased and then the rest of the whole armor of God on to do what he's called us to do. And this church, when you say something about yourself, God takes it seriously. Love others, love God, be the church. Your covenant partner here, That's your dealio. There's a story from the Korean War. I'll end with this. The enemy forces are advancing and Bravo companies cut off from the rest of the unit. For several hours, no word was heard, even though headquarters repeatedly tried to communicate with the missing troops. Finally, a faint signal was received. Straining to hear, the corpsman asked, Bravo company, do you read me? This is Bravo company, came the reply. What is your situation? The enemy is to the east of us. The enemy is to the north of us. The enemy is to the west of us. And the enemy is to the south of us. Then there was a brief pause, pause, and then the sergeant from Bravo Company came back with determination on the radio. The enemy is not getting away from us now. Surrounded and outnumbered, he was thinking of victory and not defeat. We need to have that attitude when we look at America. We need to have that attitude when we look at Kansas. We need to look at that kind of attitude when we share the gospel and when we look for revival in this country. My friends, we're not fighting a victory today. We're fighting from victory. That makes all the difference in the world. Our commander-in-chief have already ensured us victory. King Jesus has already won the battle. All we have to do is get dressed up in the armor, stand up, line up, and await our marching orders. It's that simple. And when he starts giving them to us, be sensitive to it and understand what that means. And I've got a tough job. I have to communicate that to you. And then you communicate it to me, and together, as a fellowship, we serve the Lord. And it's different than playing church of the 1970s or the 1980s or the visible church of the 90s and the 2000s that is lost and without hope. It's different if we're real. My marriage to Emily is much different than being five years old playing house with the kids in the neighborhood. So we avail ourselves to the tools. We learn to stand. And we're in the fight of our lives. But the victory belongs to us from our king. I don't say so. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says so. It says, but thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. We love you. We need you so bad in so many ways every day. And in the middle of the joy that you give, the peace that you give, oh, I just love living for you, Jesus. I know that there's a battle to be fought, and it makes me sad. Many times it makes me sad. I don't want to have to fight. And then I realize I don't have to. You've already won. I just have to stand firm with the tools you've given me. Lord Jesus, we come today to praise your name as a body collective, as a fellowship. And we do so in spirit and truth. We ask for revival to come out of the prairie lands, not because of anything cool we're doing, but because of everything that you have done to get the hearts and minds ready for this. Exciting days are ahead because you're our Savior, you're our King, and we love you. It's in your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our Sunday message. To donate, request prayer, or to contact Pastor Chris, you can write to Lifehouse Church at P.O. Box 661, Abilene, Kansas, 67410, or go online at lifehouse-church.com. On behalf of the entire congregation, thanks again for your support.